And welcome back to our ongoing series, Reading and Breaking Down, Sean McMeekin's 2021 text, Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. We are nearing the end of Section 2 now, but we are on Section 2, Chapter 10, Showdown at the Danube Delta. And coming back for another recording with me is Mr. Raging Mangel. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. I'm exceptionally happy to be here on this incredibly important topic. All right, well, let's uh, let's just get right down to it. Um, and as always, uh, he will have his links in the description, both on uh, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube, and Telegram. When I put this up later on, it will be available for patrons early, as always, on Substack and other places, and available on all podcast platforms, including our own Libsyn site here um, on the Prudentialists. Uh, wonderful series of platforms that you can find at findmyfriends.net slash Prudentialists. But we'll just get started. Despite ultimately agreeing to Soviet territorial demands in Romania, Hitler and Ribbentrop had clearly done so under duress. In strategic terms, Stalin had Hitler over a barrel. Not only was the German war machine dependent on the flow of Russian petroleum from Baku, but this oil was being sent across the Black Sea from Batumi to Odessa and then shipped, transshipped into Central Europe via Romania. All this Russian oil, along with Romanian petrol refined at Paletsi, would now have to transit Soviet-controlled territory to reach the German Reich. So dependent was the German war effort on the petroleum supply route through former Galicia that German diplomats insisted the Soviets leave the critical stretch of double-tracked railway running from Odessa through Chernovitsi to Krakow on the European standard gauge, even while Soviet sappers converted other lines in eastern Poland to the wider Russian rail gauge. By opening up resources of the east to Berlin, the Moscow Pact had enabled Hitler to circumvent the British blockade, which had ultimately doomed Germany in the last war, at the price of turning Germany into an economic vassal of the Soviet Union. And I, I've echoed this in previous chapters, but, you know, we, we, we were just, you know, to talk about logistics, and it's even more relevant in the news with this whole Red Sea stuff going down that we were just discussing on my channel of the other week or so, uh, Mantral, that, you know, logistics win wars. And um, if you're if you're dependent on someone that kind of wants to see you dead, this isn't going to last long for you. Indeed. Yep. So long as Britain stayed in the war, it seemed that Hitler had to swallow his pride and smile through his teeth, despite Stalin's increasingly onerous demands. It was not that the Fuhrer wanted to continue the war with the British Empire. As Hitler remarked upon learning that France had sued for peace on June 17th, quote, the war in the West is over. France is defeated, and I will shortly come to an agreement with England, end quote. German peace officer offers were extended to London by intermediaries in the Vatican, Stockholm, and even the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, but it was Churchill's principled refusal to parlay, not Hitler's hubris, that ensured that the European war would continue. As a frustrated Hitler confess confessed to Franz Hadler, the German uh, the chief of the German general staff in Birch's Garden on July 13th, Britain was unwilling to seriously discuss peace terms because Churchill was, quote, placing her hopes in Russia and the United States, end quote. Neither of those continent-sized powers were in the war yet, but Churchill was convinced that they would join him against Hitler eventually. And that they did. Hmm. You don't hmm. say. You don't say. Although German U-boats operating in the Atlantic had to respect it, American neutrality was large, largely illusory. 
True, a series of neutrality acts passed in 1936, 37, and 1939 strictly limited the ability of the president to help London with military aid, but Roosevelt sent a clear message to Churchill via back-channel correspondence. To frustrate any of the president's critics who attained copies, Churchill wrote under the bland pseudonym of formal, former naval person. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, like f former first lord of the admiralty yeah former naval yeah, person former naval i'm gonna person. i'm gonna put that in my uh my subtext <laughs> yes you ukraine should wars over <laughs> you should as soon as we get a peace agreement you know that it'll go from ukraine's weapons autist to, to former naval person <laughs> that it will. Uh, on may 26th uh once it had become clear that the allied armies in europe were collapsing and before the dunkirk evacuation saved the british army roosevelt had even offered to open u.s ports for the repair to the british fleet if there was a danger it might fall into german hands although appreciating the gesture churchill declined to this american gift horse perhaps fearing that if he surrendered the british fleet to roosevelt britain would never get it back well i didn't get a lot back after the war either Speaking of, of surrendering yeah. fleets, um, this is um, this is in okay. Said on Ju on July nineteenth. Okay, so we're getting into July nineteenth. Just so everybody's clear, um, and why that discussion is important around this time in uh, nineteen forty is is there's a attack uh, that the British made on the then uh, conquered French. Uh, the French fleet uh, was still uh, living and surviving, um, but it wasn't in in France, actually. It was in North Africa. And so the British basically had, there was an incident where they shelled uh, Mers el Kabir. They attacked the French fleet there in order to damage it or sink it so that the Germans couldn't capture it and use it for their own purposes. And the French fleet was actually, you know, it, it, it was fairly sizable, um, probably about on par with what Italy's surface fleet was. And from the perspective of Churchill and Great Britain, allowing the differential in terms of surface warfare and in naval power, um, th that gap being closed by any capture or utilization of the French fleet against Britain is just totally unacceptable. Um, you've lost the land expeditionary forces in France, right? So your army, even though you... You managed to save your personnel uh, at Dunkirk. All of your heavy equipments, all of your artillery, all of your tanks are basically gone. Um, so the only thing that Britain has left is is sea power at this point in terms of de defending itself from from Germany. Uh, and so this is where you start to get into interesting. Um, the discussion about naval power and and how naval power is tends to be a little bit more symbolic and and very very heavily logistical, uh, allowing the Germans to capture the French fleet as I said was totally unacceptable because at this point you've got you know the Wolfpack strategy you've got um, the attacks on British shipping you've got um, uh, Basically, the the naval war the war is now transitioned into its naval phase because Germany is now relying on sea and air power to try to knock Britain out of the war or to inflict uh, some kind of painful uh, defeat in at least in terms of uh, naval logistical strategy and using the U boats using air power to uh, destroy their shipping 
cripple the British economy and and get force Britain to come to the peace table, right? That's that seems to be what uh, Hitler's plan for knocking out Churchill is. Uh, it didn't go, happen that way, um, largely because you know Britain got American help. But this is why these things are happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, what was it in Mers El Kabir in early July, right? I think this was July 3rd, 1940 is when that took place. That's and, correct. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, absolutely. You've, you've got to, um, I, I would be equally concerned that, you know, if Britain were to lose the war, that uh, British assets would not come back uh, anytime soon. 1940 was a presidential election year, and Roosevelt, using the European war as a pretext, was seeking an unprecedented third term. In his nomination acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention on July 19, Roosevelt was careful to say that the United States would stay out of the war except in case of attack. Hmm. But he hmm. also declared that the United States regarded the, quote, totalitarian states as a strategic adversary, and that his government would emphatically defend the Western Hemisphere against outside aggression. This speech buttressed Churchill's hope of a U.S. intervention, helping doom the final German peace feeler issued earlier that day when Hitler had appealed in the Reichstag once more to reason and common sense in Great Britain. I can see no reason why this war need go on. When Roosevelt sidestepped Congress and agreed on August 13, 1940 to send Britain 50 mothballed World War I vintage destroyers in exchange for 99-year leases on British naval and air bases in the Caribbean, on Bermuda, and in Newfoundland, Churchill's refusal to entertain Hitler's peace officers seem vindic peace offers seem vindicated, if at an extortionate price. And there's our destroyers for leases. Yep. Um, it's also interesting, right, uh, with foreign aid, and this is what this is really the first occasion where you see military aid that is provided en masse, right? And because the naval warfare realm it it takes a, a long time to build up a navy so just giving somebody 50 ships is pretty uh significant even if you're getting something in exchange but this really is is one of the first times where you've seen that kind of massive uh weapons transfer taking place right i think this this might be the first time in history that this has ever ever happened um it's it's up until this point it's very rare to see people um just almost giving uh, weapons in sizable quantities, especially warships, even if they're mothballed, right? Even if they're obsolescent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the, the real flex of, of foreign aid that we're beginning to see, not just during wartime, but also just sort of the history of American diplomacy, both in neutrality or in, during wartime as well. The Soviet case was more frustrating still to Berlin. Nominally, Stalin was Hitler's ally and partner in aggression, and yet because Britain refused to declare war on the Soviet Union, Soviet neutrality and Churchill's hope for a Soviet intervention against Nazi Germany blocked a possible deal between Berlin and London. Annoyed as he was with Stalin, for now, Hitler had no better option than to stick with him. In his Reichstag address on July 19, Hitler reaffirmed his commitment to the Moscow Pact, proclaiming the world to the world that neither Germany nor Russia has made one step to this time outside of their zone of interest. By a similar logic, Stalin saw no reason to break with Hitler. However alarmed he was by the German victories in Western Europe, Stalin's adroit maneuvering to end the Finnish War in March and the fall of France in June had erased the threat of British-French intervention in the Caucasus. 
But the confirmation of these plans and captured documents shared with Moscow by the Germans also made unthinkable the idea that the Soviet Union might cooperate with the conniving imperialists of London. With the Magicilli affair, as it was styled after German newspapers published incriminating documents captured in France between July 5th and 12th, gave Stalin and Molotov good reason to cold-shoulder Churchill and his new ambassador, Cripps, even if the Baku plots dated back to the Chamberlain era. Conveying Stalin's reply to Hitler's Reichstag speech, Molotov announced before the Supreme Soviet on August 1st that this Moscow pact had done away with the possibility of friction and what he euphemistically called the application of Soviet measures of security along our western frontiers, while guaranteeing to German tranquility in the east. The course of recent events in Europe, Molotov concluded, have not only weakened the strength of the Moscow Pact, but have proven its importance and the need for its further development. In contrast to his profession of equanimity with Berlin, Molotov peppered his speech with jibes at Britain and France, understandably in the light of Germans' exposure of their plots to bomb Baku. Molotov blamed France's military humiliation on the stubborn refusal of her leaders, unlike their German counterparts, to properly appreciate the weight of the Soviet Union in the affairs of Europe. As for Britain, rather than dwell on the British pilots' Caucasian overflights, which Molotov blamed on Turkey and Iran, easy and less dangerous targets, he gently mocked Churchill's decision to continue the war against Italy and Germany because he was counting on assistance from the United States. Showing that this was no mere aside, Molotov attacked the Americans with more venom than he had the British, signaling out Washington for its refusal to hand over the foreign reserves of the Baltic countries that Stalin had just erased from existence, or as Molotov cynically put it, gold which our state bank recently purchased from the banks of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. <laughs> purchased. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we stole that shit, but you know, we, we, we bought it, you know, it's that, it's that five division discount, you know. President Roosevelt's well-advertised concern for the interests of the Western Hemisphere, Molotov sneered, was a mask for American imperialist plans to take over European colonies as it already happened in the Western Hemisphere with the basis for Destroyer's deal. Roosevelt's rhetorical support for Churchill, Molotov thundered, harbors the danger of a further extension and kindling of war and its conversion into a world imperialist war. Even so, despite that what he mocked is Churchill's pathetic reliance on the Americans and all of England's hostile acts against the Soviet Union, Molotov allowed that his appointment of Labour MP Stafford Cripps as ambassador brought the possibility, at least, of better relations. From his precarious perch in London, facing, an unseemingly, uh, facing a seemingly unbeatable German war machine encamped across the English Channel, Molotov, or Churchill could only fume at the apparent, apparently unbreachable solidarity of the Molotov-Ribbentrop gangster pact. In late June 1940, Churchill sent a personal letter to Stalin, the first of many, to ascertain if there was any rumors of the tensions between Moscow and Berlin. You became friends with Hitler, Churchill wrote, as if observing a startling coincidence. At almost the same time, we became his enemy. Perhaps, he suggested, Britain and the Soviet Union could find common ground in opposing German hegemony in Europe, while also deepening economic ties via commodity trading. Although Stalin had agreed to receive Stafford Cripps, who had handed him Churchill's letter on July 1st, the Vots remained formal and frigid during the meeting. Stalin even defended Hitler's conquests, disputing Churchill's characterization of a fully Nazified continent after the fall of France. To achieve a hegemony in Europe, the Vought's objected, would require the mastery of the seas, 
and Germany has no such mastery and will not likely achieve it. True to the letter of the Moscow Pact, Stalin informed Hitler immediately about his conversation with Cripps and made no reply to Churchill's letter. As Sir Ulm Sargent, a wizened foreign office expert, minuted at Cripps' report, Stalin has got Sir S. Cripps exactly where he wants him. That is to say, as a suppliant on his doormat holding his pathetic little peace offerings of tin in one hand and rubber in the other, end quote. Uh, and I mean, this goes back also to sort of the, the great power competition between Britain and France, even during the First World War. I mean, you want to see what, you know, trying to take on a, a naval hegemon looks like. You, you look at battles like Jutland and, and you watch the, the dreadnought, you know, arms race take place throughout the, the 1910s and up into in through the Great War. And that was a bloody, nasty thing that it was. And uh, I mean, again, this is why we saw, as, as you, you know, the correct term, but they, the the Germans at this time are just they're waging an economic war with the U-boats and and whatnot. They weren't they had no mastery of the sea. Correct. Uh, the the term that you're looking for there is a French term. It's called a uh, uh, guerre du course, um, which is an economic war, and then the the opposite, which is the war that Britain is trying to fight, which is a a naval war of annihilation, where you're trying your object is to destroy the enemy fleet in its entirety. That's called a guerre de scar. Um, and so, it, you know, the Russians here aren't wrong at all as to what the state of play is in terms of Germany's and you know Britain's capabilities are. Um, and so what is Germany's strategy here? Germany's strategy in a gear de course is to affect the economic war, is to try to sink as much uh, merchant shipping as possible, um, force the British staff to implement rationing at home and, and starve the, the British out, essentially, um, of both you know, arms, ammunition, war material, food, et cetera, et cetera, right? All of the economic necessities uh, required to maintain uh, an extended uh, siege, basically. Um, so yeah, that's that's, and and I don't think that the U United States doesn't understand that either. It's very clear that that's um, that Roosevelt also does because he's giving the even though they're kind of obsolescent, uh, the fifty destroyers in the destroyers for bases program. So you're giving the British really what they need in order to fight this economic war. Um, into uh, um, to get the resources necessary. And furthermore, really, I think that this is when you start to see uh, mistakes uh, on Hitler's part made. Um, and what happens if your your main plan for defeating the UK gets frustrated by by Roosevelt? Um, I think it's clear what what. Hitler's decision was in 1941 in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, but um, there's more to it than this, right? Um, even before Pearl Harbor, uh, Roosevelt is offering Britain basically to, uh, as a, this is a matter of U.S. policy, to escort merchant shipping all the way to Iceland, in the vicinity of Iceland, where the Royal Navy takes over. Um, so not only are you giving the British... 50 destroyers in exchange for the bases you're offering to to basically escort all of this merchant shipping whether it's under an american flag or not or other flags and you're taking it halfway or three quarters of the way across the atlantic and then the british with the resources that you've now given them are now going to patrol a much smaller area in the vicinity of their home islands uh, and and using the rest of them for their empire 
basically. Um, so you're you're alleviating a lot of pressure is is what Roosevelt has has done, and and so and so it it really is. Um, what am I trying to say here? I, I guess I I would like to say that really the strategy that needs to be done uh, after this happens is is not. Um, the Blitz or or Operation Sea Lion or anything like that 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 obviously did not work and probably was not never going to work just because uh, you have a lot of uh, naval power that you have to you have to get through before you could even launch an invasion of of Britain. Um, I think in terms of knocking out Churchill um, and getting Churchill to come to peace terms really you have to be patient and you have to exhaust um great britain at this time you can't just use a one-time knockout blow like you did with france or poland you have to the, there's a wonderful tv show um uh named 1864 it's a, a, a joint uh german and danish production but it's about the 1860s and, and Bismarck and all of that. But there's a, a wonderful moment in it where General von Wrangel, who's the commander in chief of the Prussian army against Denmark, um, he basically says, look, I, I fought Napoleon. And the way that you defeat Napoleon is not by defeating him decisively in the field. You have to exhaust him and you have to really establish a, a series of consecutive defeats that force somebody to come to the peace table. Britain at this point um, is using the cope of of Dunkirk very effectively in in terms of wartime propaganda, uh, and they're using the uh, saving of the personnel of the British Expeditionary Forces to ignore the fact that actually this was a, a disaster, and you got very lucky in in Hitler's unwillingness to advance further and faster and to surround and cut off the British expeditionary force in its totality and destroy it. Um, but you lost all your heavy equipment. So the British expeditionary force gets knocked out, but that's not where the British strength is. The British strength is in its Navy. So from the perspective of Churchill, well, why do I have to make peace? My Navy is, is where my strength is as a maritime empire. It's not actually my army. Big deal that you, you destroyed my army, whatever. Um, so that's, that's the strategy that, that could be done from the third Reich's perspective. Anyway. Let's see. All right, here we are. Despite his frustrations, Churchill was impressed by the audacity of Soviet foreign policy. On July 3rd, he called in Ambassador Maisky to learn what he could about Stalin's intentions. Might not Soviet aggression of Romania, Churchill asked, represent a return to the imperialism of the Tsars? Maisky, a good communist, pretended to be shocked by the question, which prompted Churchill's retort. Perhaps you are right and said it is a new Soviet imperialism. Probing further, Churchill asked if the Soviet incursion into Romania might not be viewed entirely favorably in Berlin. Maisky replied coldly that the views of the German government are unknown to me. Persisting in his line of attack, Churchill cited a quote attributed to Fran uh, France's collaborationist Vichy minister, Pierre Lafal, that Hitler had no real hostility towards France, as his real ambition was to deal a death blow to Bolshevism. Maisky replied that the Soviet Union was ready for all eventualities. 
Maisky's elliptical remark buttressed Churchill's hope for a possible Russian attack against Germany as he mused aloud in a closed session of the Commons later in July. Behind the scenes, relations between Berlin and Moscow were just as frosty as Churchill hoped, even if he was unable to confirm this on the record. After the fall of France and the Soviet invasion of the Baltic countries in the days after June 17, 1940, rumors had swirled around Europe that the Red Army, capitalizing on the Wehrmacht's concentration in the West, was preparing to march from Lithuania into virtually undefended East Prussia in German-occupied Poland. These rumors were serious enough that on June 23rd, the Soviet TASS news agency issued an official denial of press reports, appearing in almost every day in the American, Japanese, English, French, Turkish, and Swedish press, that Stalin had concentrated 100 or as many as 150 divisions on the Soviet-Lithuanian-German border preparatory to invading the Reich. Revealing as much as it had denied, the task communique announced that the Red Army had invaded the Baltic countries not with 100 or 150, but instead not more than 18 or 20 divisions, which are moreover not at all concentrated on the German-Lithuanian border, but are, excuse me, but are spread out across as many districts of the former Baltic republics. Those troops, the report concluded, had not been massed in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania with the aim of applying pressure against Germany, but rather in order to guarantee the fulfillment of the Soviet Union's mutual assistance pacts with these Baltic countries in order to occupy those countries. But yeah, uh, also kind of telling, though, that uh, it was that bad to, to sort of either on purpose to stoke it or that the Soviets were really wargaming out how they might... Uh, take on germany at this time but we we, we uh, this goes into a whole bunch of uh theories that um mcmeekin does talk about in this book or, or more or less he like he makes references to them and with respects to uh um that they, they don't get enough attention in the west but uh stalin's war um by mcmeekin you know gets a lot of harsh criticism by being quote unquote uh too nice um uh you know, despite I would, you know, <laughs> being too nice to to Hitler, despite this book really being a focus on on uh, on Stalin. Well, well the, the, does he actually cite um, Suvorov at any place? He mentions major... he he mentions the Suvorov hypothesis, um, and he, uh, he gets gotcha. criticized for even sort of trying to address it. Uh, he he doesn't buy into it wholesale. He does make the claim, and that's the name I was looking for. Um, he does. Uh, he does say that the Suvorov hypothesis is not. Uh, is some, the West doesn't give it any attention, and he. That, that's a, the really big takeaway that McMeekin says is that there's not enough Western. Um, you know, they they just sort of dismiss it out of hand. But we will get. I will get into that hypothesis, and we're going to have a long discussion about it when we get to it. Because um, boy, oh boy, uh, McMeekin spends some time as we get closer and closer to Barbarossa. <laughs> On that subject matter. But uh, continuing on. Hitler could have hardly been reassured by Stalin's assurance that only 20 Red Army divisions now threatened basically undefended East Prussia. On June 19th, a German spy reported from Estonia that the Soviets had informed the departing and British ambassador in Tallinn that Stalin had planned to deploy 3 million troops in the Baltic region to threaten Germany's eastern borders. Whatever truth about the Red Army troop strength in the Baltics, Soviet military intelligence was well aware of the favorable order of battle uh, in June and July 1940. As an internal memo prepared by the Soviet general staff at the time noted, the path between 
Kaunas and Berlin lies completely open for our air force, as is the stretch of land from Vilkovsky, Koningsberg, Berlin, for our armored divisions and motorized infantry. Okay, stop. So this is also deeply concerning from um, the perspective of the Third Reich, because at this time, the Red Army had the most numerous air force in the entire world. Um, now, of course, you're beginning to see in 1940 the um, the dominance that air power has in terms of deciding the conflict and its necessity really for any sort of advance, especially armored advance. You cannot uh, use tanks uh, effectively if they are not uh, given air cover. Um, tanks are vulnerable to, to attacks from the air, of course. Uh, so from Germany's uh, point of view here, uh, having the Russians with an, a very sizable army and an extremely sizable air force uh, amassing on their border uh, is very deeply concerning. Um, so, you know, and given what you has already been said about uh, Romania and how close the Russians were to Ploesti and the oil fields, which are a strategic necessity for Hitler, Hitler cannot have any sort of uh, defense of Germany. He can't, he can't do any sort of serious military operation without the oil that's in Romania. So, of course, if the Russians are amassing all along the border in, in Prussia, in Romania, he, he, he's definitely feeling some pressure, even though the Russians still technically have an, a neutrality pact with him at this time. Yeah. The same possibility occurred to the Polish exile government in London, headed after the self-dissolution of the previous government when it fled to Romania in September 1939 by General Vladislav Sikorsky. I wonder if there's any relation to the current Radoslav Sikorsky married to Anne Applebaum. On June 19, 1940, Sikorsky requested that Viscount Halifax appoint a Polish liaison diplomat to Britain's Moscow embassy. Having been destroyed by Stalin alongside Hitler, Poland had no embassy of its own in Moscow. In his memorandum to Halifax, Sikorsky proposed that this Polish liaison diplomat work with Stafford Cripps to make use of the valuable reserves of trained Polish men and officers in both Soviet-occupied territory and the Soviet Union itself, i.e. deported prisoners of war, in order to create, with some assistance of the Soviet authorities, a Polish army of some 300,000 men for service against Germany. Although Halifax declined Sikorsky's proposal, and the episode is forgotten today, in the days after the fall of France, there was considerable chatter in London about an opportunistic Soviet invasion of the vulnerable eastern borders of Hitler's Reich, with Polish veterans joining to fight. It's almost as if they don't know that the Soviets massacred like 25,000 Polish officers and uh, government officials, as, as if they didn't think that they weren't ever going to use these people. Yeah, it's it's absolutely ridiculous um, f for this suggestion to even be made, given hindsight. I mean, it, it also kind of illustrates uh, a bit of the internal tensions of Britain, and and the war is not going well for the British at this point. Um, it, you know, the Blitz hasn't really ended yet. Uh, the Battle of Britain has not been decisively won in Britain's favor. So, of course, the cope... Um, and and hopium, uh, you know, uh, starts to uh, affect people's brain. So I think that uh, this is an interesting example of that. But yeah, it's 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 totally ridiculous in, in hindsight. 
I mean, I, I understand that, you know, at the, at the present moment, you're fighting Hitler and, and the, the Reich in general and its military. But, you know, how would you expect a, a Polish POW or a Polish gulag worker in prison uh, to suddenly want to take orders from a, a Soviet commissar that he probably has been beaten by or has been, you know, threatened with his life? Countless, it, unbelievable to, you know, make that possibility even happen. Yeah, I think it, it also just shows the naivete of um, of the British at this time, and really a lot of uh, Westerners as to the true nature of the Soviet Union. But anyway. Yeah, naivete, but also, I, I sense also desperation. True enough. The Germans had also heard rumors that the Soviets were contemplating an invasion. In early July, German military intelligence picked up an intriguing story from a reliable source in Lithuania, who had overheard conversation between two drunken Soviet officers, <laughs> two drunk Soviets, the, the, the stereotypes write themselves. Drunken Russians, I mean, yeah, gosh. <laughs> and a local resident. When the Lithuanian asked why was it necessary to send so many Soviet troops in to occupy the Baltic states, the Soviet officers answered spontaneously that their main task was to prepare for an invasion for, of Germany. Asked to specify who had sent them into Lithuania with this purpose, the Russians gave a stunning answer. Crips! The much-touted meeting between Stalin and Churchill's new Soviet-sympathizing ambassador to Moscow on July 1st, 1940, had sparked talk of the Soviet officer corps of a reversal of alliances, with a British charm offensive helping convince Stalin to turn against Hitler before the German armies could shift eastward from France. Um, although, as we saw earlier in the text in this chapter, that the, the you know, response from Stalin was cold, formal, and frigid. Uh, not a lot of charm going on there. Um, I'm going to check the, the footnote here, see what we get. Cited so, in Schiel, uh, the escalation of the war in the East. Interesting. Okay. This is very, that's very interesting, actually, um, with the, the formal and frigid uh, disposition of uh, Stalin to these guys. Um, and we already went through all of the, the internal subversion of the British as well as the United States. Um, but... I mean, it's it's interesting to note that that in their desperation, um, the British are beginning to turn to the only other power in Europe that is still militarily capable. Um, so I think that's I think that's notable. I, I don't think that in um, in hindsight that necessarily that that was an alliance that was like um, going to happen. Uh, necessarily. I, I think that that, that was not an inevitability in my view. And, and I think that there's, it's very clear that if, I mean, if from my speculative point, I would say that I don't think that the Suvorov hypothesis is, is entirely uh, um, accurate. I think that it's, it's partially accurate. I don't think that, I, I think that Stalin probably would have been more than a, happy to allow the British and the Germans to keep, you know, bludgeoning themselves until he sees that one of them weakens and then he would probably choose to invade Europe with the Red Army. I don't think that he would necessarily preemptively do that. Um, you know, um, that I think, I think kind of Barbarossa forced his hand more than anything else. Yeah, I, I, I would actually have to read 
the his hypothesis in in full. I, I know that there's a lot of criticism that from a lot of mainstream historians and some of his own colleagues that you know he he gives a lot of that hypothesis more credit than a lot of current academia deserves or gives it and he simply says that we're so quick to dismiss it i'd actually have to read his position more fleshed out before i can give comment but i mean i i i do agree about you with the the naivete here just you know, we, we we went so closely from even in Chamberlain's era to, well, maybe we just bombed the Caucasus and bombed the oil depots. And now we're talking about, you know, having our, 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 our Soviet, you know, sympathizing labor MPs, which there are a lot of Soviet sympathizing labor MPs at this time. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, there's, there's, you know, you, there's maybe a, a small, you know, bit of brasso of a shine difference between a, a dyed in the wool communist and a progressive labor MP, even in the 1940s. But here we are. Um. It's also very interesting, I think, um, to discuss uh, Churchill because this is all being done at the behest of, of Churchill's government. Um, and, and really, I, I think it, it, it's very odd, right, to see this shift in opinion. It's almost I almost am coming to this view that that what we would describe as as the post. Um, the post World War Two and especially post Nuremberg uh order in terms of uh what the truth is and what the narrative is of, of the time i think i think we could almost we can almost attribute a lot of these things directly to churchill almost um it's i i always get very flabbergasted when you hear statements of churchill about how he thinks that soviet communism is like the most evilest thing ever and he's talking in like pre-1938 or whatever and then all of a sudden in 1940 when he's at war with germany oh now we can be best bestest buddies with you know the reds it's this this arch conservative like pro-british imperialist you know pro-monarchy person it's it doesn't make sense right it's almost like like churchill is the original tory boy if that makes sense i don't know what do you think I think that it does go a lot with convenience of the war. Like, listen, uh, I mean, plus there's the whole Anglo-Germanic sort of rivalry between World War One. We, we, of course, even in America, right, there's, you know, the Morgenthau's and, and so on, that kind of class of people that uh, would like to see just Germany wiped off the face of the earth. And I mean, plus the Soviets had no problem during and after the war uh, of ethnically displacing or just outright cleansing ethnic Germans in, in the region. Our, our friend J. Otto Pohl has talked about this in his book, The Great Years of Silence. But I I, I don't know if it's just like the OG Tory boy type deals. People like to, to make comments about sort of the, the, the Tory party sycophants of that blog nationalism. But to me, you know, it, it was that I can live with something far away that for some, to some extent, we, we don't know how much of Churchill's opinion had been totally warped by so many Soviet yes men that were either his ambassadors or parts of his cabinet. But again, uh, this book doesn't go into it in full detail and I would have to do way more research um, on this than uh, I, I know. I'm, I'm like, I know a lot of guys in our, in our space are, are big world war two um historians and, and and so on this is not this is not the war i studied um you know I, every man gets assigned at a young age what kind of war they're, they're going to be interested in and and mine was more of the first world war than it was the second um i feel like to understand world war ii we need to understand the 
the 20 year ceasefire um, and the first world war more, but yeah, it does raise an interesting question. And um, that might be a conversation for a certain man in Chicago that I'd have to ask. Well, we'll, we'll carry on here. Um, actually, I'll let you read this section. I'm going to get a drink of water. Sure. Whatever he may have said in public, in private, Hitler was aghast at Stalin's effrontery in taking such bald advantage of the feats of German arms in the West to conquer new territory, not to mention his aggressive moves near the Reich's frontiers in Lithuania and occupied Poland. As early as July 21st, 1940, Hitler broached the idea of a possible invasion of the USSR with the German army commander-in-chief, General Walter von Brauchitsch. In the wake of the Soviet invasion of Romania, German diplomats began dropping hints with friendly Balkan powers, such as Bulgaria, that it was time to choose sides in the coming Eastern War. On June 28th, the day the Russian invasion of Bessarabia and northern Bukovina began, Ribbentrop promised the Bulgarian minister in Berlin, Arvan Draganov, that Germany would support Bulgaria's claim on the southern Dobruja abutting the Black Sea coast below Romania as a counterweight to the Soviet push southward from Bessarabia into the Danube Delta. As Ribbentrop's Bulgarian trial balloon suggested, Stalin's invasion of Romania had reopened the entire post-war settlements in the Balkans. By virtue of having joined the winning side in the last war, despite an inept military performance, Romania had massively enlarged its territory at the expense of three now-jealous neighbors, with Russia losing Bessarabia, Bulgaria the southern Dobruja, and Hungary most of Transylvania. Just as the Nazis had thundered against the Versailles Treaty for truncating Germany, so did Hungarians wish to tear up the Treaty of Trianon and Bulgarians the Treaty of Nuili Sursain. By seizing Bessarabia and northern Bukovina, Stalin had given Hitler a golden opportunity to win new revisionist allies for the Axis keen to share in the carve-up of Romania. Yeah, why not? Why not just try and repeat what you did with Poland? Definitely, and it's also interesting because, like, he McMeekin here is talking about how you're you're engaging in revisionism of the post World War One settlement, and I think that you of all as well as I understand that the post World War One settlement could not last in the long term because I mean, it just doesn't make any, any logical sense. No, I mean like the post-world war and I, I, this is my take on it, but like so much of like Versailles is in, in all these territorial agreements, including Sykes-Picot are all trying to play to two things. One, how did we take care of the sick man of Europe? Um, the Ottoman empire. And then also what do we do about like the, the, the Anglo Russian great game? Because, I mean, like, the 1910s and, like, the late 1890s, you're, you're beginning to see sort of, like, the, the the concert of Europe die off. We're sort of still trying to answer the Eastern question. What do we do about the Ottomans? What do we do about the Mohammedans? What do we do about Russia? And uh, so much of what happens in Eastern Europe at this time is just not tenable. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that none of that was made to last. I mean, it was a miracle that the Austro-Hungarian Empire lasted the way that it did, but it also had a strong you know, ethnic component to it that made it work with respects to its military for as long as it did, but making new countries. I mean, we saw in the aftermath of 1919, there, there were already, you know, 
local forces and militias that were not going to to take it and were willing to fight the authorities that they were now all of a sudden in these new these new parts of the country despite having no ethnic or racial ties to it so yeah i mean uh engaging in this sort of post-1919 revisionism that you know we're, we're going to go back to status quo ante no way in heck that uh, people weren't going to say no to that chance to be back with my homeland to be back with my people um Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. And this is the case and to a point where even now and and this just tells you how old Europe is for our American listeners, you know, even now in the war in Ukraine, you know, people uh, one of the things I found so interesting in in President Putin's little four hour sort of ask me anything with the press was the, you know, he he, he sort of just kind of casually made reference to old Ukrainian territory that was once Polish um, or German. And he says, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with that. We wouldn't intervene if they took it. You know, sort of these references to old irredentist, revisionist uh, understandings of of territory and people and language. Uh, Something that we just don't really comprehend as Americans, I think, to the degree that many people in in the continent do. Yeah, don't comprehend and and also don't accept fundamentally to a certain degree. Well, we used to, at least in the the concept of conquest. I mean, like... um, but that, that that just goes back to some of Bill Williams's historiography that I find really interesting. But yeah, uh, of course, if Ribbentrop backed Hungarian and Bulgarian claims to Roma- on Romanian territory, this might easily prejudice German relations with Romania itself, which were important and delicate because of the oil wells and refineries of Polesi. Yet, as the Russian behavior during the invasion of Bessarabia and northern Bukovina was so offensive that Romanian diplomats were desperate to counter further Soviet encroachment, as early as July 12th, 1940... As you would expect them to. As as you would expect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, At a certain point here, I mean, there was a reason why, uh, come Barbarossa, I mean, the the Germans are viewed as liberators, you know, like... if I had and, a choice, and there's, a, there's a reason why the Romanians were on the German side in Bar- after Barbarossa and, yeah. and participated militarily in the invasion of, Bar- of the USSR. Like, there's a reason for that, and it's because they were invaded first. And we're also going to see what the NKVD has been up to in just uh, this passage right here. Um, on July 12, 1940, NKVD spies in Bucharest picked up rumors that the Romanian government had quietly, a- quietly asked Rome and Berlin for military aid to expel Russian invaders on the understanding that Bessarabia would be returned to Romania. Nothing concrete was promised yet, but Hitler invited Romania's prime minister, Ion um, Girgrotu, to Burgess Garden and showered him with attention before returning to Salzburg for more formal discussions on July 27th. The next day, Hitler and Ribbentrop received the Bulgarian Prime Minister, Bogdan Filov. Though no communiques were issued, it was obvious that some kind of German settlement on the of Balkan questions was afoot. Now it was Stalin's turn to be annoyed. On July 29th, Molotov called in the German ambassador for an explanation of the Salzburg summits. Owing to the combination of German victories in the West and the bad impression left by cheap Soviet aggression in the East, Hitler was at the height of his power and influence. True, the German Chancellor was a despised figure in England after uh, in England after Germany launched an aerial bombing in the raids of the Battle of Britain in July 1940, especially after the Luftwaffe switched from military targets to indiscriminate raids on London on September 7th, 1940. He was only a bit less hated in Washington, D.C., where the terrors of the Blitz dominated the news cycle owing to the soon legendary radio broadcast Edward R. Murrow of CBS News. If anyone knows I'm anything sorry, about what? Murrow, 
If anyone knows anything about news. Oh yeah, Murrow. Yeah, um, you know the film. Good night and good luck. This uh, this raging, uh, you know, commie. We'll get into that. Yeah. We'll, we'll... <laughs> you don't hate the press enough. You don't hate journalists enough. Um, but that that's during the McCarthy stuff later on. But yes, he was uh, he was um, famous at the time for for going over the war and uh, on the radio. But in Europe, Hitler's favor was being counter courted everywhere, from Scandinavia, where Finland was desperate for a counterweight to Stalin, to the Balkans, where Romania was smarting for revenge against the Russians, and both Bulgaria and Hungary were in the market for recovering lost territory. Even Vichy France had become a supplicant of Hitler's Reich. With the new collaborationist government of Marshal Philippe Pétain clamoring for a military alliance with Germany against Britain, especially after Churchill ordered the destruction of a good part of the French fleet at Mers el Kabir on the Algerian coast of July 3rd, 1940, which we talked about earlier, to prevent it from falling into German hands, killing 1,297 Frenchmen in the process. On the continent, only neutral Spain remained aloof from the Reich owing to the national exhaustion, Franco's stubborn streak, and his abiding fear of the British naval threat to Spain's coastline. Otherwise, German influence reigned supreme from the Arctic to the Mediterranean, while Britain and France were, for once, frozen out. So often undermined by the haste of German military planners for action, German diplomats were, for once, riding high and given time they needed to court, cajole, and mediate. Of course, German military planners were far from idle in the months after France's capitulation. The Luftwaffe was ramping up production to support the Battle of Britain, even while troops and armor were withdrawn from west to eastern Europe, movements noted with alarm by Soviet military intelligence. But even if Hitler had chose to tear up the Moscow Pact and invade the USSR, he had begun hinting to his aides that he might eventually do. It was far too late in the year to start such a campaign. Unlike in the Luftwaffe, the trend in the Wehrmacht and the German economic ministry after the fall of France was toward demobilization, with thousands of troops released from duty and many munitions factories returning, for now, to civilian production. Um, a critical mistake, I would argue. The earliest realistic launch date for an eastern war against Stalin, Hitler told General Franz Halder on July 31st, 1940, was spring 1941. With no major land campaigns in Europe at hand for the rest of 1940, there was plenty of time for German diplomats to work out a Balkan settlement. All wrote... Yeah, yeah. I, I would say this is where you start to see um, Hitler begin to make mistakes. Um it's one thing to plan for a possible war with Russia uh, and to, you know, fortify your Eastern borders and to be concerned by all of that. It's quite another thing when you have a, a sizable power on your Western coast, essentially, um, basically able to use uh, Anglo-American sympathies and et cetera. And, to get military aid um, and to remain into in the conflict, I don't think, I don't think that uh, he should have declared war on the Soviet Union until after he knocked Britain out of the fight. Because without Great Britain, America has very, very little excuse to get involved in European affairs at all. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with that in this instance. 
All roads in European diplomacy now led through Berlin, or rather Salzburg and Vienna, where Hitler, in a nod to his Austrian origins, preferred to receive distinguished visitors. The essentials of the Romanian settlement to come were worked out quietly in Salzburg in late July, when Ribbentrop gave assurances to both Bulgaria and Hungary that their claims would be satisfied as long as their diplomats kept them within reasonable boundaries. To goad Romania into going along, Ribbentrop had the German general staff share intelligence with Bucharest of suspicious concentrations of Russian troops on the Romanian frontier on August 24, and he suggested that the Romanian government demand an explanation from Moscow. The report was not fictitious either. In the last days of August 1940, the number of border clashes ensued in the Danube Delta, with Romanian soldiers suffering casualties from Soviet gunfire. Soviet-Romanian tensions were peaking when on August 29, Romania's foreign minister arrived in Vienna in order to, he hoped, petition Hitler for restitution and protection. I just want to pause for a moment and just say we're covering a matter of you know, four months in this chapter. We, we've from from March to the end of August. You know, we've we've moved four months more or less. Well, really, less than four months at this point. I mean, this is an insane timeline to consider in the backdrop of not only the Second World War, but also just diplomatic and military posturing and maneuvers. We're we're talking months, if not weeks, if not days. And uh, you know, this this chapter seems like a, a blur in a lot of ways because of how he's writing it, but. I'm noticing these dates. I think it's important for our listeners and those who are watching and reading along with the text to, to realize these are this is moving incredibly quick. Instead, the Germans presented Romania with fate accompli. In order to receive a German-Italian guarantee of its frontiers against future Soviet encroachment, Romania had to um, surrender southern uh, Dobrusia to Bulgaria and the western half of Transylvania to Hungary. After the news of this brutal Vienna award was relayed to Bucharest, the shock was severe enough that the Romanian government fell on September 4, and the beleaguered sovereign, um, King Carol, fled the country in disgrace. But even this worked to Hitler's advantage as it brought to power a fascist, national legionary government under Ion Antostu. Though he was no Germanophile, Antostu was a ferocious anti-communist, or was so ferociously anti-communist, that he accepted Hitler's guarantee of Romania's new borders against Stalin, in spite of Germany's role in truncating those borders. Um, you know, again, it depends on who you saw as the bigger threat at that time. Was it fascism or communism? And for many, it was communism. After a rough go in the first months of the Moscow Pact, German diplomats were now running rings around their Soviet counterparts. After hearing rumors of the Vienna Award at a conference to which his own diplomats had not been invited, Molotov called Schulenburg for an explanation. Revealingly, neither Molotov nor Stalin was concerned about the German brokered truncation of Romania. Rather, the Vost was upset that Germany had guaranteed whatever Romanian territory was left. With visible annoyance, Molotov asked Schulenburg, Why have you given this guarantee? You knew that we had no intention of attacking Romania. Schulenburg retorted, That is just why we gave the guarantee. You have often told us that you have no further claim on Romania. Our guarantee can, therefore, be no source of annoyance to you. <laughs> oh, you know we weren't going to attack it. Why are you guaranteeing you? <laughs> oh my gosh. It just proves the point. If, you, if you're getting annoyed, right? If you're getting annoyed, you intended to take all of it. That's the point. Why, yeah. are, why are you annoyed here? Like, this should not have been a source of annoyance. The Germans are not... Are not in, are not wrong in their perception that this should have caused no offense. Not at all. 
not at all. But, you know. If that was the plan anyway, which obviously it was not. No, no. Shouldn't have caused you any offense. Were you? Why are you so angry? Were you, were you going to invade Romania? Were you were you concerned that your ability to have leverage on this territory might be taken away? You know, oh, to be a fly in the room when these conversations were having, you know, happening, I would have. Oh, what, oh, what a, God, the, the the words annoyance or you know just coldly retorted, you know, just uh, they don't do it for it. They don't do enough for you. Giving the lie to his disavowal of the interest in Romanian territory, Molotov, Molotov on September 9th called Schulenburg in again and pressed a Soviet claim on southern Bukovina. On September 14th, Molotov, citing Germany's presumptive attempt to redraw the Balkan map in Vienna, went further, proposing a new international commission on the Danube River to replace the old one on which Britain and France had seats. Molotov's proposal for a Sovietized Danube Commission revealed badly that Stalin's real aims in the region were not limited to Bessarabia or Bukovina. He wanted to control the entire lower Danube to safeguard no Soviet naval dominance in the Black Sea. With their own interests in the riverine com uh, commerce in, on the Danube and the free flow of Romanian oil into the Reich, the Germans could hardly let Stalin have this. The impasse was serious enough that Schulenberg returned to Berlin on September 23rd for consultation with Ribbentrop and Hitler. I mean, it's odd It's odd that even the Soviets still retain a massive interest in the Black Sea. You know, it, it, just the ideology doesn't really change the, the nature of, or the necessity of geographical concerns for Russia, basically. Yeah. Rather than give in to Molotov's demands, Hitler pressed forward. In October 1940, German troops, engineers, and advisors began blanketing the Wallachian Plain around Bucharest and along the Danube. The official explanation given to Molotov was th that these were units of instruction sent at Romania's request. This was not entirely untrue. Antonescu had invited German troops in, in, in and even insisted that he paid their expenses. The Germans, after initially objecting that they were happy to pay, agreed to charge Bucharest 100 million lei per month for protecting Romania's oil fields and refineries. Molotov issued a public denial that Stalin had agreed to this German move into Romania, although Berlin issued a communique reaffirming that the relations between the Reich and the Soviet Union are, and will remain, very good. Few informed observers believed this. Tensions were serious enough that Ribbentrop wrote a long letter to Stalin on October 13th, suggesting that he or Molotov come to Berlin personally to clear the air. In the meantime, Ribbentrop invited Molotov to send a delegation to Bucharest to establish a new international commission on the Danube. Adding tension to the Bucharest conference, it opened on October 28th, 1940, the day Mussolini's Italy, having already occupied Albania back in 1939, opportunistically declared war on Greece, making official the spread of the European war into the Balkans. Stalin's diplomats, led by Molotov's trusted deputy, Arkady uh, Sobolev, were as blunt as ever, demanding that... Uh, demanding that powers other than the Soviet Russia and Romania be excluded from the administration of lower maritime Dan of the lower maritime Danube that fed into the Black Sea via the Delta, with naval vessels of all other powers forbidden from using these waters. The Russians also claimed the exclusive possession of the Kilia Arm, the only channel in the Danube Delta deep enough to allow seagoing ships, including a chain of islands on the Romanian side of the demarcation line agreed back to in June. Already, Russian torpedo boats were probing the delta for weaknesses in the Romanian defenses and landing parties of commandos on the Kilia Islands. 
Border clashes were now happening almost daily, as were violations of Romanian airspace by Soviet pilots. Usually, incidents involved mere warning shots, but not always. On September 13th, a Romanian woman was shot and killed, sowing hay near the frontier. The guilty NKVD border guards pulled her corpse onto Soviet territory to conceal the evidence. Romanian troops also regularly violated the border. It was inevitable that both sides would do so along a fiercely contested, ill-defined frontier and a vast river delta dotted with islands. Prisoners were often taken. By the time of the Danube Conference in November and December 1940, both sides had arrested enough enemy nationals in the Delta that in order to maintain diplomatic appearances, a prisoner exchange was hastily arranged, with 16 Romanian detainees exchanged for eight Soviet subjects. Increasingly assertive Soviet behavior in the Delta and at the conference table left, no doubt, as a Romanian diplomat complained about Stalin's aim of assuring that the Soviet Union absolute mass mastery of the mouths of the Danube thus asserting Soviet sovereignty over the gates of the Black Sea. Still hopeful for avoiding an open breach with Stalin, German diplomats stalled for time in Bucharest, raising endless points of order and allowing the conference to drag into December without agreeing to Soviet claims. By then, the spread of the war into the Balkan theater into eastern Mediterranean because of the Italian invasion of Greece had brought still more explosive questions into play. Tensions between Berlin and Moscow were now serious enough that only intervention from on high could dissipate them. As Ribbentrop had already visited Moscow twice to honor Stalin, it was Molotov's turn to pay homage to Hitler in Berlin. And that brings us to the end of this section. Showdown in the Danube. Yeah, I mean, a lot of all of these events in Romania uh, are are never discussed in the west at all there's no focus on them they're not even tangentially talked about um so i mean it explains why the molotov ribbentrop pact inevitably broke down right there's already the ideological disagreement that was so you have got a temporary alliance based upon convenience and and really um it, it, this is this is a uh, where you start to get into interesting speculation territory as well because of well what happens if if there is no operation barbarossa or it's a year or two later as i mentioned before from you know if it, the second world war could have easily gone a different way if Herr uh, hitler had managed to secure some kind of peace treaty with the uk because or with Great Britain, I should say, um, but because the United States would have very little sympathetic angle at home to be able to get uh, involved in the war. Um, and without American aid, uh, as we'll get to in later in this book, um, and I think McMeekin makes a great case of this, that there is no, there is no allied victory without American military in financial and, and material aid, basically. Um, so keeping the United States out of the war is should have been considered a priority for, for Hitler um, under any circumstance. Uh, I think that um, with, with some, some uh, spots, uh, some very small, bright spots like uh, Zhang Gufeng and Kalkin Gol and, and Zhukov, uh, the Red Army's performance left something to be desired 
um, even if it was materially much larger and, um, you know, had more tanks, more airplanes, et cetera, um, than any other, you know, armed force at the time. I think that there's, um, and given, I think that really, I think this is where you start to see the fate of Hitler uh, begin to uh, be formed right here. He can't hold his eastern uh, flank. He can't hold Romania, which means he doesn't have the oil to to pursue any sort of uh, war, mechanized war in Europe from that point on, if he loses Ploesti. Um, so if he loses Ploesti, the war is basically over uh, regardless. Um, but what, ex what exactly does he need to do? At, at this point, he needs basically in in 1940 uh, to secure peace with Britain um, by the end of at least by the end of 1941. Right. Um, at no later than the end of 1940 at, or early 1941. Um, and I think that given the Italian this this is all where I get into speculation too because I think that Hitler obviously Operation Sea Lion and the attempt invasion of Britain was a, a strategic mistake I think that he should have opted for a more southern strategy and trying and he probably should have discussed this to greater detail with with Admiral Rader who was you know the the uh, um, uh, the leader of the Kriegsmarine at the time uh, Admiral Rader didn't get along or, or basically wanted a surface uh, combatant strategy for the Kriegsmarine in the war, much less a, a aircraft carrier or, or submarine strategy. Um, you know, Raider is a bit more of an old school guy. He's a surface combatant, uh, not a submarine man. And so of course he thinks he's, he thinks in the battleships are the way forward and, and essentially gets the German Kriegsmarine to construct you know, surface combatants. Um, I think that was probably a mis uh, mostly a mistake. I think that um, the way that you knock out Britain is to attack it at this point when it's already under pressure from Japan uh, necessarily, especially in early 1941. Um, the way that you do that is uh, after Japan pressures Britain, you, you attack them in North Africa, basically, and, and North Africa becomes the decisive theater of war. So realistically, um, how does the war play out uh, if Germany gets attacked by the Soviet Union rather than the other way around? Um, I think that would have been, the, that's the great historical hypothetical um, that we'll never know the answer to. But I think that that's the interesting question that we everyone can think about for certain. Again, yeah, I, 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 as it often is with some of these books, you, you know, you just you, you only get stuck with those images of what if and what could be or how here's how I would do it. But at, at the very least, what we do have right now is just that Nikon is giving us a side of this history that has been so flagrantly and purposefully ignored by um, anyone who would call themselves a historian or scholar by just examining that. Well, what was in it for the Soviet Union? You know, what, what's in it for me? And clearly we were we were given a, a good answer here to see just uh, what Soviet foreign policy looked like and the the leverage that they had for quite some time in the early stages of the war before Barbarossa. And 
again, uh, war is really a lot about not just technology or war fighting, but also logistics. And if you can make Germany, the Reich, an economic vassal state, um, based upon, you know, your, your trains, your control of oil fields and territory, um, you have way more leverage than, than the other guy does. And I think that's a very important takeaway from this chapter, especially as we start looking at, you know, fighting over the Danube River, over diplomacy and already uh, shaky diplomatic grounds. But we'll get into that um, in the next part. Uh, Mr. Mantrell, where can people find your work and what are you doing? Uh, well, right now, um, you can find me on the OGC's Substack and YouTube. I make regular appearances in those places. Of course, you can also subscribe to my own personal Substack and my own YouTube channel, um, and, as well as the OGC Substack and etc. Um, and what am I doing right now? Well, uh, right now I'm I'm going to be a little busy for the foreseeable future. Uh, I have uh, way more Substack articles than I have I have uh, time to write. Unfortunately, I, I suffer the curse of the Substack writer. Uh, but uh, by all means, go check me out in those places. So when I finally get around to writing uh, another banger article. Um, you can uh, check that out. Speaking of banger articles, um, you should all go check out the paid article on the OGC Substack, uh, where I was reminiscing on the good old days of Toonami, and it's uh, it's especially Gundam Wing, which has huge as a cultural reference, um, a lot of overlap in the things that we in our circles tended to talk about. Well, there you go. Um, be sure to subscribe to the Old Glory Club, both on Substack, Twitter, YouTube, etc. Um, we'll find Mr. Mantrell's Find My Friends link down below in the description. And we'll continue on with the series and finish this book in 2024. It's going to be a great year. And I hope that you all uh, take care and be sure to find the series and its playlist form over on YouTube and on, on Libsyn and other podcast platforms. And we'll see you all next time. Take care and God bless.